when things happen, I say nothing. At the top of my lungs, I scream nothing. I scream nothing so loud it deafens the neighbor's cat. I write nothing until my hands cramp, do back-breaking amounts of nothing, migraine-inducing amounts of thinking about nothing. I organize nothing, I sign nothing, vote nothing, protest nothing. My days are overloaded with massive amounts of nothing. And the crazy thing is, when I'm done with all this nothing, nothing happens. Yet I stand back surprised, and then I go back to doing nothing, until nothing happens all over again. Welcome to the Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. This month's guest is the wonderful Daniel Alexander Jones. But before we get to that, I have a big, wonderful announcement. For the first time in our history, the Subtext will be recording a live episode in front of an audience. I've wanted to do this for a very long time, and I'm unbelievably excited about this partnership with Forward Theater in Madison, Wisconsin. Specific details will be announced soon, so stay tuned to all the social medias. Go follow Forward Theater on all their channels, and if you live within shouting distance of Madison, prepare yourself to attend this event in person and become part of an upcoming episode of the subtext. Also, thank you to whoever responded to my cry for more ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. You made my heart grow four sizes larger. Onward to this episode. For 25 years, Daniel Alexander Jones has been a vanguard of black queer performance art. His critically acclaimed works include Radiate, Black Light, Duat, and An Integrator's Manual. He has recorded six albums of original songs as his alter eagle, Joe Mama, <laughs> his alter eagle. <laughs> he has recorded six albums of original songs as his alter ego, Joe Mama Jones, who is simply fantastic. His current project, Aiton.life, is a digital media site that is difficult to describe. It's www.aten.life. It's just so unlike anything I've experienced in the digital universe. It's full of music and performance and poetry and photography. I think the best thing to say is it's a digital experiment with a lot of spirit. Daniel was honored with the Penn America Laura Pell's Foundation Theater Award in 2021. He is a TED Fellow, a Guggenheim Fellow, the recipient of the Harold, <laughs> the Helen Merrill Playwriting Award. I always screw that one up. I don't know why. And he has received so many honors and awards and fellowships. You need to visit his website to read them all. Daniel completed his undergraduate study at Vassar College in Africana Studies with a focus on literature and the arts under the guidance of Dr. Constance E. Berkeley. Andy received his uh, graduate degree at Brown University. We talk a good deal about his college experiences during our chat, which coincidentally was recorded over Zoom on January 6, 2022. 2022. 
2022. So I get the sense that you are not on the East Coast at the moment. It's no, daylight where you are. Yes, it is. It is. I am in Los Angeles, uh, where I have uh, been basing of late, uh, going back and forth uh, last year a bunch. But but this is this is where I'm I'm currently, and it's beautiful today. We, we've had a very lucky, beautiful day. What's been bringing you to LA? Um, it really is my spirit home i think of all the places I've, I've lived in in the u.s it's the place i feel most um connected and in the last i'd say about 12 years every creative project that i've made i've i've started and developed here uh even though i brought it other places it somehow is a is a you know a place where i tune in to whatever it is that moves through me mm. uh, in a in a more uh in a more easily accessible way um, and so as I've gotten older, you know, one of the questions I've had for myself is like, well, why are, why aren't you living in alignment with a number of things? And one of them is place and environment, you know, and as a, as a person born on the East coast, lived a good portion of my life on the East coast. Um, you know, I, I really like the West coast. <laughs> so I'm, I'm starting to just accept that and, and move in that direction. I can relate. I I'm, I'm born and raised on the East coast and I spent years living in Los Angeles and uh, did not hate it. You know, there's, there is such an appeal to the place. It's, um, it's beautiful. And when there aren't fires, it's great. That's very true. Are you, but I read you're in Chicago now. Is that true? Is that where you are? Uh, I'm actually in Madison, Wisconsin at the moment. Wow. But yeah, so I've been uh, between Chicago and here, I've been in the Midwest for the past uh, four and a half years. Wow. Love yeah. That. And, and uh, you know, the weather, I, I grew up in New Hampshire. So, mm -hmm. you know, tough, tough weather isn't isn't new to me, but LA softened me in a huge, <laughs> huge way. Bless you, bless you. Yeah, yeah. I lived in I lived in uh, Minneapolis for a few years. Oh yeah. So I know that Midwestern thing, but there's also so much beauty. You know, like you 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 get the you get the sunlight in a different way, and people are hearty and out in the world, so it doesn't feel like you know, locked down in a lot of, in the way that sometimes I think the East Coast in the winter just feels like everybody goes inside. But in the Midwest, I find people like, okay, let's put on our snowsuit and go do our thing, you know? Yeah, I spent a, I spent a, a few years in uh, the Washington DC area, Northern Virginia. And when winter storms would hit there, that is like life altering lockdown. We will see you, you know, when it's <laughs> over. But yeah, you're totally right, the vibe in this area of the country is yeah yeah we get out we can still get out there people jogging you know absolutely <laughs> yeah that's so funny that's so funny well where did you where where did you where'd you grow up i grew up in springfield mass oh okay new englander cheers exactly cheers and so you know for those who don't know it you know it's a we're about 30 minutes north of hartford connecticut and it was a working class uh, town when I grew up there uh, in the 70s and 80s. And um, whenever anybody asks me where I'm from, I always say I'm from there, but I'm from that time period. You know, it's a very mm. place now. Like, I'm sure, you know, I'm, you're from your experience in New Hampshire, like that whole belt 
was so profoundly affected by uh, the Reagan era and Reaganomics and like gutted in so many respects. So the culture that used to really be there of a, of a you know, deeply connected community of working people um, who had some really incredible uh, kind of community institutions was really, uh, you know, gutted. And so it's right now, um, I'll say like maybe, I don't know, like seven or eight years ago, they did a <laughs> they did a report on Springfield that was in the New York Times, and they said if it was a person, it would be clinically depressed. <laughs> and I said, I said, That's about the size of it, you know? but it's still amazing people. But it's just it's been through a lot. It's you know, a lot. it's alive. Yeah, it is. You know, clinically depressed isn't where you want to be necessarily, but you're still in the game. That's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Growing up for me, Spring, I was very much aware of Springfield because I grew up in the, the western part of New Hampshire and uh, 91 is the closest highway to where I lived and Hartford was the closest airport yes. and Springfield was essentially the closest city to where I lived. So the mall, which was not too far from Springfield, uh, Holyoke Mall was yeah. like, you know, it was a road trip for us. And it was exciting to like get to the highway and head south and and go to the uh, the basketball hall of fame and go to the mall. Like I had some times, I had a few times in Springfield uh, growing up. Awesome. And little little do folk know. I think a lot of people don't know, but we we had a a really um, it was a really powerful art scene when I was growing up. Uh, there was there was a mural movement among black artists that was happening in the 70s and early 80s. There were a lot of um, kind of community-based arts. There was a dance company, Frank Hatchett, who was a dancer who had made it big in New York, uh, but was from Springfield, came back and had like a young people's dance academy. And then we also had Stage West, which was like a, a regional theater uh, right downtown. And uh, it closed, I can't remember when it closed down, but when I was in high school, that's where we would go to, you know, go see a play if you went like for a matinee at school. And so we got the benefit of going to see plays at Stage West, which was um, really magical. I, t I, I just took it for granted that that was what you could do. Um, but when I look back now, it was really quite a little miracle that we had our own little company. Uh, for, for a number of years. I think some of the folk involved in it have been part of City Company, um, if I'm not mistaken, so. Were you particularly engaged artistically when, when you were a kid? I was very much engaged, but in a, in a very local family community way. Like the arts were, what I always say is the arts were in the public school still, right? So, so I got exposed um, to visual art to music and then ultimately to theater uh, through my public school, through my teachers and, and the, you know, the various activities that we had uh, available to us. And my mom was artistically inclined, but I think everybody in my community loved music. They loved, you know, performance of one kind or another, you know, story, they were all great storytellers. So there was a sense that, that art was not far away, but it wasn't, for us at least, a, a precious thing. It wasn't, it didn't feel elite. It felt like this is what you did, you know? Like, so we all 
all of us kids listen to the radio, we learn the latest songs, we learn the latest dances. And there was, you know, when, when it came time to play or to hang out with each other, very often we would do something artistic, drawing or painting or what have you. And it just was second nature to us. But a lot of that started in the, in the public schools. Um, my grandfather, my mom's dad had been a musician. He died well before I was born. He was the first conductor for the Springfield Symphony Orchestra. He was a violinist. And his death was so traumatic that it really put a kind of block up around, around that kind of music, that classical music. My mom couldn't hear it because it would make her so emotional. She mm -hmm. was still such a very sore place for her. And so while I knew that history, I didn't have an immediate example of an artist in my life who had made a living as an artist. So it all felt very like, you know, it didn't, it didn't kind of consolidate into a clear thought that you could have a life as an artist. It was more just that art was a part of our world. I love hearing that because it is so, it runs so counter to my own experience growing up. And I, you know, I, I grew up not far north from you, but mm. it, and and I'm roughly the same age. Uh, you know, I, I graduated high school in the in the early '90s, so I you know I had my um, coming to be in the you know in the late '80s and um, in in southern southwestern New Hampshire. And you know, art and theater, this and music was kind of present. It was there, but it wasn't cultural. It wasn't part of what we did. Um, so it felt like something else. And, uh, I very much grew up in the, in the culture of, um, you know, go play sports, like that kind of thing. So I was so late coming to find theater because it, it wasn't something I felt or understood, uh, growing up or any kind of art form, you know, painting or drawing or singing, or, mm -hmm. uh, and, I love that, that. I love that. Just maybe like, I don't know, fifty miles south from me, the <laughs> the world was just completely different. Yeah, I think part of it too, honestly, was that a both my parents were readers. You know, they had gone they had gone to the same public high school that I enrolled in, right? Like it was right downtown, and you know, they they were there in the in the fifties, and I was there in the in the eighties. But um, I can't underscore enough how much that sense of public school as a resource was just big. And the library in Springfield was right across the street from the high school. So as a nerdy kid, you know, who was queer and didn't quite know I was queer, you know, like all, all the things that come along with being, you know, a young, <laughs> a young artist who doesn't yet know that that's what they are. Um, the library was a big refuge for me, you know? And so my parents happened to be people who read a lot. So they would go to the library and we would get, we would go maybe once a week. Um, and then at, during high school, I could just go across the street. And I love to go on um, Tuesdays, Billboard magazine would come out and they would, and that was the day that they would also release new music. And I would go and pour over, you know, all of the, 
the news of the, of because I loved music. I loved records and the radio and everything. And that was one of the things that brought me a lot of pleasure was like, you know, I guess it's like the junior version of people who play the races or something, like that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, but even going to the building and getting familiar with the, you know, the research hall where they had those magazines and the, and the records. And it just felt like that, that sense of, of access and that in that library were people who were unhoused in that library were people from all walks of life, all races, you know, all ages. And there was something, there was something sacred about it. Maybe some people might think it was a little uptight because, you know, it was definitely the era where the librarians would shush you and stuff like that. But there was something so special about just sensing like learning, reading, talking about ideas, which was big in my family. Like when we sat down to dinner, you had to have something to talk about. You know, couldn't, you couldn't run through what you did that day. Um, but these were all things that working people had. And that was a, you know, I later would encounter that big lie that that was only among, you know, educated elites. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You know, I, my uncles, some of whom never even graduated, you know, they didn't, they didn't some didn't complete college, uh, some didn't complete high school were all conversant in politics in the work news of the day. They could, they could sit down and have a deep conversation with you. And so really in some ways it was this beautiful accident of the time and the place that I grew up in. Who first uh, started to inspire you artistically when you were young? Oh, uh, it would have to have been my, my late mother. Um, she, she was, I think uh, I think she was she was a genius. She was an artist who whose life didn't give her that opportunity, right? So uh, she had uh, gone to college in North Carolina and had gone down there as the sole Yankee, like she was the one <laughs> one from the north, you know. And so they would they they piled on her, and uh, you know she was very much a social social socially ostracized person for the first couple of years, but she found a way to make connection and community with people. And she ended up writing and directing the the original show for her senior year of college. That was like the big event on the campus. And, and, you know, she was very crafty and very much loved painting. So I, I, again, I felt like I grew up with somebody who didn't pursue that in the world, but in our house, it was just, she always was making something or always telling a story or, you know, performing in a, in a, in a funny voice. Like I'm definitely one of those people that goes around my house talking to myself in different places, you know, and that comes from her. So there was just this, I don't know, a real, a real uh, buoyancy to her spirit. And that part of what made her love life and made that love of life contagious was creating things. Um, and she and my, my, her best, one of her best friends who was like my aunt, um, her name was Pucci. And so Aunt Pucci and my mom would sometimes, whenever they would get together, they would sit with their guitars and sing folk songs and stuff. So there was just always this, like, it was just part of the, the water in the, in, in the environment. Um, but I would also say, you know, two other things. One is, you know, <laughs> TV in the 70s. <laughs> and there were a lot of variety shows, you know, a lot of like 
people, personas who, who were, were singers or artists or what have you. And so I became entranced with that pantheon of, of, of people, I think particularly of like the Motown era folk and the, um, you know, the disco folks and, and soul train. So there was something about like the allure of those incredible virtuosic performers and, and kind of dreaming as a young person, like, oh, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to meet them or know them, or maybe I could do that kind of thing. But I was so introverted that I couldn't imagine it. And then the third part of the answer to your question is that um, in high school, uh, there was a drama club. And in addition to visual art classes, right? So I found visual art as my refuge and the, the teachers in that uh, program, there were two of them, were just so kind, you know, like they were the kind that could just look and be like, oh, this poor, <laughs> this poor child. Mm -hmm. As a teacher now I get it, I'm like, oh wow, this person is struggling because they, they haven't figured their stuff out yet or they haven't, they haven't grown into themselves yet. And so they made a haven really. And they were like, just come in here. And, you know, so I learned my little drawing and stuff. But my homeroom in the 10th grade was in the drama club uh, homeroom. And the teacher was the one who taught drama. And I apparently, I would just like stare at the drama kids whenever they would come through, you know, the room to go get props or, or there was like a little back room that they had. It was an old building from the 1800s, I think. Uh, so it was really beautiful, old school. Um, and there was like a little anteroom where the drama kids had a like an actual club, you know, clubhouse type vibe. And you'd hear them laughing. And so she saw me kind of pining after them, even though I never spoke much in that class. And she's the one who really dared me to audition for the drama club. And that turned everything around. You know, so there was also that intervention of a public school teacher. I guess that's my theme today. <laughs> yeah, and, and these are stories I love to hear because, you know, I've done so many of these, I've recorded so many of these conversations with writers of all ages. And mm -hmm. uh, the one of the threads that connects us all uh, are the teachers, the teachers that recognize something in us before we did. Uh, and uh, nudged us in the right direction or fed us the work that we needed to experience at the right at that right time and uh, and I just love that I didn't have I didn't have that because I wasn't engaged artistically but I had teachers uh, that reminded me of what you were just saying that I was um, a troublemaker when I was young but I wasn't bad and I was so lucky to have teachers that could see that like, He's making trouble, but he's not bad. So don't let go of him. And uh, these my, these were teachers of mine from from junior high school, and um, I adore them to this day because I recognized at that age of 12, 13, 14, like they protected me and they really saved me from going in this direction and just nudged me and helped me. And uh, I ended up going the right way. So I just, it's like the, I, hearing these stories about these teachers are just, it's inspiring. It's crucial. And, uh, you know, it's, it's primary relationship. It's primary relationship, which is why, to me, the tragedy of the divestment in our nation from public school is so pointed. Um, and case in point, 
I can point right over there to my refrigerator and I have a, I have a card that my fourth grade teacher sent me for the holiday and we're still in touch, my fourth grade teacher. And, you know, she shaped me so profoundly and I still revere her, you know, and, and yeah. she's, she's uh, in her eighties. She now lives in Georgia. Um, you know, she was my first black teacher in, in elementary school. Um, and she's still out there running things. You know, she ran for public school board recently, like in her eighties and just like, and when I talk to her, her whole thing is, well, what are you doing next? What are you doing now? You know, like that, that continued sense of motivation, uh, which I think is also part of the reason that I, you know, chose for so many years also to teach because it felt like an obligation uh, yeah. in the most powerful and positive way. But it was like, you've got to also teach while you go do your thing. And that mm -hmm. defined me, that really defined the first half of my, half of my um, life, either being a student or being a teacher, you know? And now I'm in a bit of a, a shift. Uh, uh, I'll be 52 in February and I'm sort of like right on that, you know, right on that edge of reimagining and reframing things. But I'm certain that in some form or fashion, always teaching will be a part of what I do. Because um, I just think it's what you need to do, you know, if you can. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I think of it as like we're uh, we're on a continuum, mm -hmm. and we're constantly, you know, reaching out for help and reaching out to give help simultaneously. If we're doing our work right as artists, like that's that's what we're doing. Going back to. Uh, that drama teacher from high school who saw you and said, this one needs to audition. Do you remember what it was you auditioned for? You auditioned with, like how you got into the drama club? Vividly. And I tell this story often. So for anybody who might hear this and have heard me say some version of this, forgive me, but um, I, you know, I mentioned that, that we went to go see a couple plays at Stage West. I, they were probably like, it was something like, like Midsummer Night's Dream. It was like very traditional fare, but I didn't know plays. I, had, I didn't know plays. So I went across the street, hard in my throat, mind you, because I, I, I don't think I slept for the week before this audition happened. Cause I like my heart was thumping and I knew I had to do it, but I didn't know how or what, you know, it was just one of those like gauntlet got thrown down moments. So I went to that library and I went up to Rice Hall, which was the big hall of the library. And they had a section of plays. And so I went up to the drama section and I, I, can, I can still feel the shelves. I, I walked in and I looked, I just looked at it. And I was like, oh my God, where do you, what do you even do? I put <laughs> my hand out and the first, thing I pulled down, which is why I don't believe in coincidence. It was Ntozaki Shange's For Color Girls, uh, who've considered suicide when the rainbow's enough. I pulled it down, I opened it, and my whole body vibrated. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I get this. I know, like, I get this, I know this. I don't, I, I just, it was a, an alignment. And this is what, I was 15, so it was 1985. I don't know gender. I don't know. I don't know any of this. I don't know these ideas that we now have, right? I just know that that what I read made sense to me, and I knew how to say those words somehow. So that's what I took, <laughs> and I performed as the lady in blue 
for my audition in the public high school in Springfield, Mass in 1985. And I got into the drama club. And years later, I met the Lady in Blue, the original Lady in Blue from For Color Girls, who became one of my most important mentors, Lori mm -hmm. Carlos. So it like I just was like, okay, they 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 took me in hand and they were like, you go here, you stand there, reach for that book. It was, you know, it was it was an extraordinary experience. And I remember the most the thing I remember most about it was that I don't remember doing it. I just remember after it was done. I remember I kind of went away. And when it was done, I was shaking. I could feel the energy in my body. And I looked around that little classroom and all of the other students, everybody's eyes were huge. Cause you know, it was a lot of things I don't think people had seen together before. I hadn't seen together before. Um, but what really happened, and I think this is true for, for any, any artist really who, who does the thing that they're gonna do maybe for the first time or the first time that it really hits you is that a capacity had opened in me without knowing that it was gonna happen. It wasn't something I could have predetermined. It was something about the alchemy of standing up terrified in front of a group of people with a text that I was using as my, as my point of departure and arrival and just trusting somehow that something that I felt from sitting there in that library reading that play would come through to meet those people. Like something that I could feel, I could imagine inside my head, somehow I could communicate that to those people. And it happened. And overnight I went from being like the geekiest black queer wallflower boy to like an actor. <laughs> I was like, it was like <laughs> night and day. <laughs> and you couldn't put the hand back in the box. So that was, that was. <laughs> I'm just thinking about how wonderful it was that a librarian put that book on the shelf. You know, somebody made that choice. We need to have this on our shelf. That's right. And it's going to be alongside Chekhov and it's going to be above Shakespeare, which is going to be probably several shelves to the right, you know, uh, and it's not, it's not like them. And, and like, it's how I love how it's the uniqueness of this, this piece of writing called out to you. You know, you're like, you're like I, this is the play version of who I am as a person. And that's 100%. why you pulled it off the shelf. 100%. And because this is part of the interesting thing, because I didn't have knowledge of the canon of theater. I didn't have any presuppositions about what a play was supposed to be. That play made entire sense to me. So then as I got older and I began to understand that many people don't consider it a play, people, you know, they come up with all these names for it. They talk about who, who can and who can't write a play, what a play is supposed to be. It's like that, that experience also inoculated me against, you know, aesthetic rigidity because it, I, like I had such a kismet connection to it. And then I became, you know, I, I feel like it, it also was connected to my experience growing up in my neighborhood. And, you know, the value, the artistic value, the cultural value um, of that time 
was, you know, it was segregated. Even though we were an integrated city, right? And we, our schools were integrated, culturally we were segregated, which is true of, I think, most Northern cities, right? Like that, that people may work together and ride the subway together or the bus together, but generally they decamp to ethnically specific enclaves, right? And I grew up where the value system was determined by black culture and largely by black Southern migrant culture would come up from uh, you know, the Carolinas or, or deep South during the great migration, which my father's family had done. Um, and so what music mattered, you know, like when I would go to school, the music I listened to was not the music my white peers listened to. And I didn't, because of whatever reasons, I was grounded enough in that to be like, well, that's the music I like, <laughs> you know, and I think it's great. And I can, you know, I can see that you all listen to that. That's not my cup of tea, but I didn't have that thing that happens to, I think a lot of people who enter these institutions where they then aspire to adopt the aesthetics or the mores or the values of, of the dominant culture. For me, it was like, no, we're, these are two different things. And somehow I was able to keep that sense of identity so that I could discern the difference, you know? So as I learned theater, I had to, you know, it's almost like uh, separating the wheat from the chaff, you know, like I had to say, can I appreciate Chekhov, Ibsen, Shakespeare, without also taking on this idea that they are somehow the ultimate. They are the, you know, the, the peak of this pyramid. And, and so it gave me an interesting perspective, which I think then really determined something about how my career moved going forward because I, I didn't aspire to emulate that canon. I, I aspired to communicate the aesthetics and the cultural values that I grew up with. When did you start to develop a, a sense of awareness of what you were as, as a you know, theater artist? In terms of, in terms of like- you know, what, you're, taking all, you're taking all this in you know, uh -huh. you're, you're, you're becoming inspired and you're, you're, you're finding yourself. Uh, when did you start to understand um, that you weren't specifically influ becoming influenced by these, these old traditions that put people inside a box? To be, to be honest about it, it was when I went to college. So it's important to just frame briefly to say that, you know, I, I, I thought I was gonna be an actor because um, that was the way in, that was the thing that made sense. And in high school, I got to, you know, a lot of the plays we did in high school were kind of those plays from Samuel French or what have you that like have a cast that's large enough for all the kids in the drama club. And it was like, you know, like I'm, I'm a disgruntled teenager who's talking about, you know, an eating disorder. It was like that kind of play, like the yeah. pastiche pieces. But we also did some other, you know, other plays and I got to play a bunch of different kinds of, of roles. I even was Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady in our high school production, which was hilarious. It was just like, none of it, like I look back now, I'm like, what did you do? Um, but it was, it was somehow because of my own naivete and also maybe because of the kind of particular emphasis or mission of education at that time in the public schools, it didn't feel like, it didn't feel charged in the way that, that performance across race and performance of you know, different, different styles would later feel for me. 
So I went to college and again, not having had a lot of experience around me of people who had applied to college, like it wasn't that kind of situation. So I made a pretty blind choice. Like I got into, I, I applied to random assortment of things. We had overburdened guidance counsel. You know, it was a typical public school situation. Um, but fortunately, be you know, because of my grades uh, and my my you know discipline, I was able to get into a number of schools, and I ended up choosing to go to Vassar College. And I chose to go there because Meryl Streep had gone to Vassar, and I was like, she, <laughs> you know, what I mean, it's like this is how kids think, you know. I'm like, I'm like, for sure. Like, what other reason do you need? What other reason? And their brochure. When I opened their brochure, they the drama department had a picture of a black woman who was an actor in the thing. And I was like, and there's black people that little did I know she was the one, you know what I mean? Like, which is what they always do. They follow us around on these campuses and take our picture as though we're many. Um, but when I got there, it was a, a brutal, brutal awakening uh, to how these, these plays, these creative works are actually terrain. And that there, is a, there are all these power dynamics tied to that terrain. And so my, my innocent relatively sense that as a young person, oh, I could play this or I could play that or I could play that, crashed into the, the reality of where, what they valued based on their own racism, based on their own homophobia, where there were just blinders that they had um, to who I was and what I could do. And so I was uh, told at the end of that first year by the head of the acting program that I should consider another major because they would never cast me in the leading role. And it was blunt, straightforward like that. And it devastated me, um, not because I cared so much about what they thought, right? But because I wanted to play, I wanted to do different kinds of work. And so I was like, oh my goodness. So I, I ended up leaving school for a semester and going somewhere else and trying to you know, get my footing. And it was, it was one of, I think any, any uh, black artist, any person of color has a story about when they first get really, really snake bitten by the field. And that was my, my first big snake bite. So what it led to was an understanding when I came back to school that I was gonna to have to go a different way. I still wanted to do it. I didn't wanna give up on my dream to be in theater and to make art. And I thought about Shange and I thought about, you know, that had led me to investigate even when I was in high school, who are other black writers? Who are other people doing other things? You know, I already love uh, literature, music, film, like all that stuff, but I started to learn about the plays. And then when I got back, I took a class in black drama that was being offered through the Africana Studies program. And I met my first really, really crucial mentor whose name was Dr. Constance Berkeley. And she was the professor of that class, but she also taught widely in, um, she taught North African literature, uh, Islamic studies, and she had a deep background in drama and poetry. And so I went to meet with her and maybe about a month into the class. And I was like, I just felt like that nervous energy. I was like, I wanna, I wanna just see, is there a possibility here? And 
I told her what had happened with the drama department. And I actually remember I cried in her office, you know. Um, again, now as a teacher, I'm like, you know, always have tissues in your, in your office. And, uh, and I'll never forget that she smiled and kind of chuckled a little bit to herself. And I was like, why is this lady smiling? I'm like, I'm upset, why is she smiling? And she, she said, young man, that's how they are. How will you be? And it turned the tide, tears stopped. And she laid it out for me. She said, if you will be an Africana studies major, I will work with you, we'll get you everything you need as a foundation with the idea in mind that I would pursue graduate study after in some form of theater, which is what I did. And she, she was true to her word. And I ended up writing, directing and performing in a thesis production for my final uh, project at Africana Studies. Um, and it was it, it, in a weird way, that was 30 years ago, 31 years ago, it was in 1991. And it set the stage because that's what I ended up doing is, is whether I wrote, perform, whatever I would do, but I would be making my own thing. So I gradually moved away from the idea that I was gonna go and be an actor. It took me a little while to understanding that I was a maker. And before there was such a thing, you know, in, in popular discourse, that I would be an interdisciplinary maker. And so I just started doing it. And I was lucky, 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 lucky to come up at the time I did. And then to find that, you know, leaving, leaving college and leaving, I went to grad school at Brown. Um, I met my people. I, I found connection to these, you know, burgeoning arts communities in Minneapolis and Austin, which was where I spent most of my 20s. And, you know, I had that, that almost, uh, it's almost like a, a, another world to think about, but I was able to, to live a life in my 20s where I could have, you know, a, a clutch of odd jobs from being working at a cafe to being a nude artist model to whatever, you know, a tutor, <laughs> like crazy things make enough money to rent a room, you know, and make work. Make work with a community of young people like myself around the country who are just like wanting to do things a different way. So I, I was very fortunate. Did you go straight to Brown after Vassar? Was there like an in-between period? No in-between period. I went straight. And part of the reason was um, at Brown is Rights and Reason Theater. Uh, which is one of the oldest continually operating black theaters. And it was the only Africana studies program that was housed inside of an arts program. And so I had the occasion to be introduced to one of the men who founded Rights and Reason. And he invited me to apply. He was like, you should come here because what we do there is what you wanna do. We research, we do historical research, political analysis, community work, and then we make plays. And I was like, that's everything. The, the head of that theater was named George Houston Bass. He was the former uh, social secretary for Langston Hughes, poet, playwright, brilliant, brilliant man. And then he died. He died uh, before I got to go uh, to Brown. Um, but I still applied and, uh, you know, th through some miraculous series of events, I was able to go uh, with a scholarship there. Um, 
And so I see, I said, just go. Because I had had such a difficult undergraduate experience. I just wanted, I, I was hopeful that if I went, I could have some other kind of an experience, which is indeed what I ended up having. And oddly, even though I was in grad school, the majority of my friends were undergrads because I was similar in age to them. And it was like, I got dropped into my community. And, and when I look back at that cadre of people who were there, it was, it was an extraordinary group of people. My God, an extraordinary group of people. Like the great Ingenue Ellis, who's, who's getting all these lauded uh, uh, reviews for her work on the, the, the Williams Family film. And she was there. She was an, an, one of our like celebrated actors. And even, even then in her 20s, was knocking it. Uh, everybody knew Anjana was going to be famous, you know. Like so, it was it was this incredible gathering of young black artists inside of this institution that somehow found each other. And you know, I am friends with those folks today, thirty years later. Hmm. You talked about how you you spent time in in Minneapolis and in in Austin. How did you? Like how, what brought you from Providence, you know, <laughs> to the, to the Midwest? Unemployment, <laughs> getting a job. Um, yeah, I, a friend of mine from grad school, uh, like basically I finished grad school. I had some internships. I had an internship at the Smithsonian Institution doing theater in the museum. It was a bananas time. And then I was like, I have no money. I have undergraduate school loans. I don't have no job. Like it was, it, it, it all came crashing down. You know, like I had nothing. So I ended up moving back to Massachusetts. I was working weird jobs. And then a friend of mine from grad school said, hey, they're gonna do my play. In, at Penumbra Theater in St. Paul. And I know you're interested in, you know, doing some stuff. The director, um, I really love the director and she, maybe I can touch base with her and see if she needs somebody to like be a gopher or an assistant or something. And you could like get in there. And I was like, I would do anything. I'd sweep a floor, whatever. And she reached out to the director whom I had met the previous summer at a theater festival, a black theater festival in North Carolina. And unbeknownst to me, that director, my mentor, Lori Carlos, who I mentioned, and another person that I met, they had met me at this theater festival. They had had me in mind for a part in this play. Nobody had communicated that to my friend who was the writer. But when they contacted her, they were like, you know, uh, when, excuse me, when she contacted them, she said, my friend is looking for any opportunity to do that. And they're like, wait a minute, do you mean Daniel, Daniel, the tall one with the hair? Like, we want him for this part. So I auditioned for this part and was cast. And then January of 94, I was on a plane to go be in a play. And, and so it was like, again, I got, I got lucky. I got lucky. And luck meaning that there's connection and there's, you know, that they could see in me that I was serious about continuing this work, right? And I got out there and then I just fell in love with the Twin Cities. I, it, you know, at that time in the early nineties, I think it had a higher theater going rate per capita than anywhere in the country, if I'm not mistaken at that time. It was, there were so many theaters and it just was, again, like you're in the Midwest, it's part of the cult, like it's cold, people go to show, you know, people go do stuff. So everybody went to theater and therefore there was a real sophistication there's this long running black theater. 
There's another theater in Minneapolis, Mixed Blood, which was like an intentionally multicultural and political theater. Obviously the Guthrie, the Jungle Theater, Park Square, like there's, I could go down the list of different illusion theater company, but many of them were interested in hybrid form. Many of them were political. Many of them did non-linear work. So I was immersed in an environment where the kind of thing I was interested in, there were sophisticated, grown adult people who were doing it for a living. So all of a sudden I had the example of, you know, I'm thinking of the great uh, visual artist and designer, uh, Setu Jones, who was, a, he designed a lot of the sets for Penumbra. Um, he was a muralist, he's still living, brilliant, brilliant artist. But I'm watching him and I'm like, he, he'll do a community-based project. He'll have kids in his house from around the neighborhood building stuff and making stuff for themselves for education. He's designing a set. He's designing material for an installation, you know, and, and then there's musicians hanging around playing the horn around him and stuff. And, and I said, oh my God, you could have a life like this. It could, you could put together a thing like that. And then that led to a connection with a, a theater in Austin that was looking for a director for something. And that's how I got connected to Austin. And I went down there and same thing, I fell in love with an arts community. And, um, and so it was, it was really about being willing, you know, I often think about the tarot card of the fool and the idea of kind of just following this flow of a thing it's precarious. You, he doesn't know it's precarious because he's the fool, you know, but there's, but there's this sense of like trusting that if you go toward what you don't know, there's something there that could be a miracle. And if you stay with what you do know, you can be secure in many respects, but you never have that adventure. And so it, it really charged those years with a sense that I think became foundational for me as an artist what don't I know? Let me go there versus me say what I do know. So during these years when you're on this adventure, you're a maker, right? Self-described maker. What are you, what are you, are you making? Are you also like writing for yourself? Are you, are you like creating your own works? Like, tell me about, tell me about your early work that you were, you know, working on in that period. Yeah, I would do a lot of, I, I wrote a lot. I wrote, a, I wrote often actually for when I look back, I, I wrote more than I give myself credit for having written. And I would often write as a way to try to reconcile, which for me were very distinct parts of my consciousness, which is one being, you know, what am I doing today? What's the everyday life? One being this, you know, artist brain that is connected to, you know, the field and making and, and you know, recognizing that I could make a thing that could be a play or a monologue or a song, I could make a thing like that. And then three, the perhaps the most dominant thing was this, what I think of as a kind of spiritual space, a metaphysical space where I tried to understand something about the nature of life, you know? So I would take quandaries, whether they be interpersonal issues or love questions or, or political questions that, that spiral out into larger questions about, you know, ontological questions. And I, in order to work them out, I would sit down and I would, I would write. And so some of my earliest pieces were about trying to get to the bottom of something that I couldn't make sense of, you know, 
Um, one of my early plays was about, you know, the history of the South that my father's family had left and that they were all like many of those migrants were, they didn't talk about what happened down there. And I had, I would be haunted by these dreams and visions of it. And so I used the play as a way to figure out what that was. I'm not even imagining anybody would ever read it or do it, you know, but I was just like, let me go in and use that as a thing. And then also I loved uh, characters, creating persona and characters. And, um, you know, that was something, like I said, growing up with my mom and she would always do these voices and persona. And then in high school, uh, you know, I was, I was a 16 year old right around the time that, that Whoopi Goldberg did her one woman show. And so that, that record back in the day when they would make records of shows was a big hit record in my high school. We all knew those characters like, you know, Fontaine and the girl with the shirt on her head. And, and so the idea that you could put on a persona and then let that persona tell a story really appealed to me. So another aspect of my work was developing these characters of these people. And, um, and I would do uh, performances around the Twin Cities or in Austin that would be short, but they would be based in these personae. And um, it was in uh, the mid nineties that I first performed my, my alter ego, Jamama Jones. And she had such a big impact on me and she had such an impact on an audience. I had never, as a performer, had the impact on people that I had when she was, she was there. And I said, oh my God, people will do anything. Like it's like I could act, everyone changed in the room. So I knew that I had to work with her as a persona. And that led me to write my first full length performance piece, which I then ended up touring around to a few places uh, during the time when we have what used to be called the Regional Alternative Theater Network or the RAT Conference, <laughs> i.e. raggedy ass theaters, but it was like Seattle, Twin Cities, Austin, Boston, DC. Like there was just like a loose network of you know, small independent theaters usually run by young people who we were just trying to resource share and, and, you know, shows would come to the theater I worked with in Austin from Seattle and vice versa. And, and so there was, you know, I just started to make stuff. And again, I, I was coming up at a time where everybody I was around was making stuff. Dances, interactive performance installation, everybody was just doing music, whatever. So I just made and I made and I made and I made and I made. Do you remember the first time Joe Mama Jones spoke to you? Yes, 100%. Um, I was in my room. I was staying in an apartment with a, a friend of mine. We were, we were roommates. Um, she's, she's now a very, very uh, successful actor. And I was writing notes for this show. I was just writing like, like words just in a notebook. And the name Joe Mama Jones got written down. I was like, what, what's that? I've been thinking about Soul Train uh, because it was so much a fixture of my upbringing. And I didn't wanna, you know, pretend to be Dionne Warwick or Diana Ross or Stephanie Mann. I didn't wanna pretend to be somebody, but I wanted to perform something of that era. And she came and then she was like, you know, she kind of communicated to me in empathically or intuitively what she looked like, what she felt like. And then she started to speak to me and she was giving an acceptance speech on, an, on the Soul Train Award show. Like, 
and this is before there was, I think, a Soul Train Award show, but it was like this, like she was giving me her life story and I just started writing it down. And then I ran into the other room and I said to my roommate, Saida, I said, Sai, this thing has happened. And Saida being who she was said, let's go. And so we went downstairs, we got in her car and we went to, I can't remember the name of it, but some, some one of those stores, it's like, they don't have them anymore, but they used to have like costumes and records and jewelry and like, you know, they were like a catch-all kind of, of, of hippie store, you know? And we walked out with a, with a wig, a dress, some heels, went home, put them on and took her out for a walk. And the, the story that I always tell is that we passed a construction site and the bulldozer went like that and stopped. And all the construction workers jumped out and ran up to the fence and started catcalling me. And I said, I made it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so that was the beginning. When this was happening, when you created this character and you created this show for her and you were touring it around, did it feel like life was changing for you or were you just happy to be working? Hmm. It felt like I was doing my work. Um, and, and I say that again in part because I was surrounded by these master artists, Alori Carlos, Robbie McCauley, Rebecca Rice, you know, some of those great artists in the Twin Cities. And, in, and also I'm thinking like a Deborah Hay, Marjorie Siegel, just people who are making, making, making. So in a way I felt a little bit like the, the younger sibling who's playing catch up. I'm like, I gotta go make shows, like, go make shows, you know, like make stuff. Um, and I didn't, it felt in alignment. Again, I think part of it is that fool card. Like I didn't quite understand the industry, quote unquote, that I was gonna be in for because my world was populated with people who were making work for reasons other than fame and notoriety and getting their thing put on all over the country. They were making it because it had import to the community. They were making it because it had resonance with the lineage, with the ancestors truly. And because it was, they needed to do it. Like in the same way that I talked about, like as a young person writing the thing that I was trying to figure out, they needed to make their work. So my example was not like career professionalism first. It was art is an important part of being a human. And, uh, you know, as I got to know the business aspects of it better, I could, al I could almost echolocate myself and say, oh my goodness, I'm really, I live outside of that thing but I'm gonna to have to learn how to deal with that thing. So I did feel my life changing because I began, you know, I began to feel my work reach people that I wasn't, you know, which happens when you start sharing your work, you know, the people who you don't know start reading it or hearing about it. And, and you start to read and hear about artists who may be doing similar things. You know, so I came up at the same time as a lot of, of the artists, uh, uh, you know, who were doing uh, drag or cross-gender performance, but we didn't know each other. But it's almost like how things can generate in different places at the same time, you know? So uh, 
Yeah, it's just it's just interesting, you know, because because Jomama Jomama happened um, in '95, and so it wasn't for many years that I learned about Taylor Mac and 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 Justin Bond and um, John Cameron Mitchell, and you know, uh, chronologically, Jomama came before Headwave. You know, I mean, like there there's there's so it's that kind of an idea I think moves through multiple consciousnesses at the same time. It's a kind of a zeitgeist thing. And so for me, I didn't have the burden of comparison. I just was making, you know, and it, wa and it wasn't, an, again, until much later, probably in my early thirties that I, I said, oh my God, like, you know, there really is this huge world of other artists doing a very similar, using a similar uh, palette or cupboard, doing very distinct work, you know, like I think all of our work is very different, but, but that, by that point it felt for me emboldening because I said, oh wow, I'm part of a larger conversation and that's exciting. But I didn't, I didn't come up, you know, I think as a lot of young people do today with, a successful career at the forefront of my mind. Hmm. That wasn't where I was at, honestly. Do you think there's something about the, there's the work that's in New York and then there's the work that's outside New York and, and you started outside of, of that? 100%, and I, I mean, in terms of like career stuff, I have paid that price for that. Um, you know, as I, I think there are a lot of my peers who are, are really famous now um, started their career in New York, you know, and I think there's that, that subtle um, or not so subtle prejudice against the work that, that happens outside as though, as though, again, ironically, as though it's derivative, as though it is less serious or less rigorous. The irony to me is that many of the people who are my mentors were New Yorkers who left New York in order to make their work because they couldn't make their work there anymore, right? Because of being priced out or being gatekeeped out mm -hmm. because they were, they were um, really integrated and, and politically savvy at a time when um, satire was, was, was the rule of the day and, and a certain kind of you know, a, a, a careerism was present uh, and a lot of the institutions where they had worked came under new leadership and they were, it was, it was, it, it became very, very different landscape for them. So in truth, my training was as rigorous, if not more rigorous. And the, the fact that I, I, I come back to is I, I made work. I spent my twenties making work, um, you know, I made, wrote, produced, performed, directed dozens of pieces. So when I look back, I have the receipts to show for what I made. You know what I mean? Like I can say, this is, this is what I did. Um, but, but what ends up happening, I think, is that there's a certain kind of, um, makes me think about like zip code stuff, you know, like in Manhattan, you know, like depending on what zip code you're, you're from, you have certain opportunity and not other kinds of opportunity. Um, and, you know, and I, there, it's led in, in my career, it's led to a kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? But it's like when you, you know, there's a certain kind of shutting out 
of, of, of my work from certain conversations over many years um, that I think is entirely due to that thing of having decided to center myself outside of New York uh, during my first part of the career. But then you came, but then you came to New York. Mm -hmm. I came, I came uh, back to New York full time. In my How was late... that transition for you? It was, it was pretty brutal um, because, you know, I came back, uh, I knew that I needed to come to the city. Um, it's like coming to market, you know, like you have to bring your work to the city uh, for it to move to a certain level of access to resources. And that's what I was concerned with was continuance, resource, how can I leverage things in order to make more things possible? Um, and also because I didn't want to, I didn't want to run from the city either. You know, I wanted to see what is that journey for me. And when I got there, it was, you know, a, a total shutout. And, and I had a wonderful agent and she basically said, you know, everybody respects your work, but nobody will do your work. And I've tried everywhere. There's nothing gonna happen. I don't know what to do. And that was in my, my mid thirties. And it was, it was pretty devastating. And then um, it, was, it was conversation with uh, the, the incredible Melanie Joseph who used to run the Foundry Theater, um, where she said, she said, look, hon, you know, like in her inimitable way, she was like, she's like, this is, this is, this is she kind of broke down the politics of the thing for me. And she said, if you're gonna do New York, you have to be here for a few years and nothing will happen. And she said, the most important thing, honestly, and this is what I tell my students too, is to meet people, find out who your people are. And, um, and you know, there will be people who will get you and there'll be people who will advocate for you. And it ended up being the case. And it was, it was um, two folks. It was Shanta Thake, who is the, uh, was for a very long time, the artistic director of Joe's Pub. Um, and she's now um, uh, head of artistic programming at Lincoln Center, and Sarah Benson of Soho Rep. Um, I was fortunate enough, and I think one of the things that brought me back to New York is I was uh, a, a member of New Dramatist uh, as of 2003. So I would come and I would do, you know, workshops and readings and all of the incredible things that they offer. And, you know, they were, they were incredibly supportive of, of me and my colleagues who are outside of New York. You know, like they've always been really great advocates for stuff. But it was a result of those conversations with those two women and over a long time. And finally, an opportunity arose um, around Joe Mama, actually. So I was doing plays. I was writing serious plays. I was, you know, I was, I was in that headspace and um, kept getting no, 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 no. And when I was 38, 39, uh, she came to me, her voice came to me. And I, mama's voice, you mean? Yeah, and I had not performed her for years and years and years and years. And she said, it's my time. And ironically, you know, my attempt to do, do the serious artist thing, what, what she said is just let me do what I do. You can't be in charge of this. And it was, it was hard for me because I was very much in that, at that time in my life, you know, um, grappling with, with my own ambition, grappling with a lot, like a lot of stuff that I think every artist faces if you're going to do this for your career. And it felt like, am I giving up on my writing as a playwright and all this stuff like that? 
As soon as I did that, the floodgates opened. Uh, Shanta invited me to come perform at Joe's Pub. I, I it's a much longer story, but I wrote my, my first album as Joe Mama. We recorded it. We performed that live at Joe's Pub. Sarah came to that. She said this, this, because she had read my work and she's like, I really like your work, but I'm not going to produce your, your work. And then she saw Joe Mama and she was like, that right there, that's the thing. And so that led to a show at Soho Rep and boom. And then the, rep, the, the next decade was, was Joe Mama on fire, you know? So, um, you know, six albums later, however many shows, whatever, it's like, and, and the thing that, what I think is really poetic about it is that it brought me back to play, to joy, to trust in the unknown and to letting go. I, I was like, well, I'm, I guess I'm not gonna have a quote unquote career in New York in the way that other people have had it. You know, <laughs> this, this may or may not be appropriate for the podcast, you know, but uh, in 99, American theater named me one of, of 30 artists under 30. They were like, they, they were like, here's the next wave of people. And they called me an interdisciplinarian, which was really interesting at that time. And then never would cover my work again, ever ever, ever, ever for anything other than like a listing of a season or something, you know? So it was sort of like, yeah, but no. So there was this, just this, not gonna, not gonna let you have it. And that totally flipped with Joe. And so the, the beauty is I kind of had to surrender a desire to even have it. And then it happened. And, and I think it gave me, uh, clear-eyed view of the distinction again between the art and the business of the art. Um, and I haven't always been great at the business of the art, but I do think it's what's interesting to me, one of the things that the pandemic did that I think was really powerful was it really kind of not that idea that the most interesting things are happening in the city. Uh, because we got to see windows into so many different artists, so many different processes, you know, so many of the live streams, the, you know, the incredible hybrid work that people were building around the country that suddenly we could click and see, you know? Um, and I, I began to feel what I had known for years, which is some of the most dynamic and exciting work is actually happening in small towns, in, in cities that aren't known for their performance work or their theater work. And my hope is that that decentralization continues in some shape or way, shape or form. Yeah, me too. As somebody that has spent my entire artistic life outside of New York, <laughs> I hope. I get what I'm talking about. Deeply. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. You, you spoke earlier in our conversation about how you're turning 52 mm -hmm. in February and you're starting to feel like a transition into a new phase. I'm, I'm not, I don't mean to put words into your mouth. That's right, that's real, that's real. What are, you, what are you looking at? What are you feeling for the next phase of your life? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, last year was a tremendous year for so many reasons. Um, in addition to the upheaval and the, the, the constant challenge of, of our national political scene and, and also the pandemic, 
somehow, you know, I was able to work with folk and we completed this book of my previous work uh, called Love Like Light, this collection. And also this big digital project that I did called uh, Altar Number One Aten, which is named after the, um, the name of the sun disk in ancient Egypt. And on the one hand, the book sort of helped me honor and, and let go of all of that work that I've done up to this point and say like, bless you, you're out in the world now. And I hope people will read this and engage with it in that form. Um, I'm particularly hopeful that students will want to read it, you know, in the way that I read Shange or what have you, you know, like let take it and maybe it'll speak to you and help you. But then the digital project was great because it introduced me to the idea of really applying the full weight of my creativity to a long form, you know, digital and interactive experience. And while I had recorded music and I'd made music videos before, I'd never really made something that had a full compositional shape to it that was primarily rooted in that and not live performance. And so um, it thrilled me. I was like, this right here, I get this, I like this. And, and I also did a lot of long form uh, narrative writing, uh, essays, and I've been working on another book. And, and so there's something about the, the kind of the hustle and the, the grind and the, you know, let's put on a show energy that defined me in my 20s and my 30s and my 40s, that while I'm certain I will perform, what is really calling to me now is, you know, another tarot card, which is the hermit, you know, like the idea of going, going deep within and really, really listening for what the next shape and the next form will be. Um, and I'm, I'm part of a couple things right now that are like, that are really exciting, including there's a lab at Sundance called the, um, it's an interdisciplinary makers lab that they're, they're piloting right now uh, because they, they uh, paused the theater program and they're really interested right now in like, what are, what are ways that people are making that kind of cross boundaries and really explode form. And so I've been having some conversations with artists who are part of that cohort and with, with folk there. And I feel very, like, I feel like I did in my twenties. I'm like, what can we make? Like, what's the next thing? Um, and I'm less concerned with, you know, what I used, like if you asked me five years ago, I would still might've wanted to, you know, to have my show happen and go and tour and stuff. Now I really, I'm, I'm thinking more about connection, interactivity, and the idea that work, whether it be in this book form or in this digital form can reach people directly and is not only contingent upon live performance, which that's the other part, like you talked about the New York and outside of New York thing. And I think another part of, of our field, which is really challenging, right, is that the magic is in the performance. And if you're not in that room, you know, you don't get the full magic of it. But doing this other, other shape, I said, oh, you can do it in the writing. You can do it in the music and the video. It just is a different approach. So what happens if I put my imagination to that? So that's where I am right now. And, uh, you know, I have a couple ideas that are, are percolating um, for what's next. Um, but I'm very, yeah, I'm very excited to explore 
you know, in addition to kind of continuing to work on these other two things, getting them in the world and whatnot. Have you heard from Jomama lately? Yeah, yeah, she's been around. We did a Christmas show at New York Live Arts uh, uh, right before I left. And um, that was really lovely. And it felt like another really big full circle moment. You know, uh, they, they've been a, a tremendous uh, support. So, you know, in those years since the, you know, nobody was talking to me, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, I really, I really did find uh, heart and home with Soho Rep and with the public and with New York Live Arts and Jack in Brooklyn and really incredible people who did make space for me to, to work with them and dance with them. And by virtue of that, then to connect with communities of artists who were working and making and, um, and so it felt like a beautiful kind of closure to that chapter as well to go there. And, and they invited me to install an altar on the wall of the third floor. And we just, we had a, we had a really beautiful time and Jomama enjoyed that. That was her only live performance of last year. And right now I think she's probably on vacation somewhere <laughs> enjoying herself. <laughs> does, does, is Jomama aging as you age? Yes, and I put it like that. Like I, she is. She's always felt older to me than I am, but I feel like she's aging into a timelessness. The same way that I think about those incredible women who are in her DNA, like a Diana Ross or a Diane Carroll or or um, Lena Horne, the great Lena Horne or Josephine Baker. Those those artists who. The greatest compliment I think I was ever paid about Jomama was uh, uh, we did a show, we did one of her shows here in LA uh, about a decade ago. And um, there were two old timers in the audience in the front row. They had to be in their 80s, maybe even their 90s. Natalie dressed like the, you know, scarf and starch and everything. And they came up to me afterward and they said, they put their hand, my hand in their hands and they said, We've seen Josephine Baker. We've seen Lena Horne. You've got what they had. And I fell over. I was like, done. That, that idea to me, that, that core energy feels timeless. It's, an, it's, a, it's a continuum, as you said earlier, that word, that, that idea of continuum. So what I feel is as Jomama gets older, less and less sticks like something's falling away from her revealing her and i hope <laughs> that that's true of me to whatever degree it's is feasible um just to say that my my prayer in my own getting older is that i get out of my way i want to i want to i want to let go of more than i than i take on um and you know my mom passed in november of of 2020 uh, very suddenly, and that was a that was a huge shift for me because um, anyone who loses a, a a a mother, you know, and I and I, I I really believe whether you had a great relationship or a fraught relationship, it's so fundamental um, if you have had contact with her, you know, that when you when you when you lose them, something changes in you. So it really was a good kick in the pants for me to do some, you know, what already was happening at this period in my life, real soul searching. And um, the people who are older people that I loved the most, that were beacons 
to me, who taught me the most important lessons, were people who had learned to let go and set down their weapons at the riverside, let go of materiality, and, and really focus on the heart. And so that's, that's my work, right? I think my, my main job right now is to clear away anything that's in the way of that. Um, and that means, you know, sitting with my joys and my disappointments, sitting with like looking honestly at, I'm very grateful that I have had the career that I've had. You know, maybe, you know, I'm, I, I may not be, you know, uh, a known name in the same way that many of my peers are, but what I have in spades is that I got to do my work. <laughs> And I got to do it in a way that was integral. So I can, I can point to that book and say, I stand with everything I did there. There wasn't, like it didn't, it, it wasn't a compromised path. And for that, I'm profoundly, profoundly grateful um, because not, that's not a common thing. I'm very lucky that way. Um, and yeah, now I'm just like, you know, I would like to, I'd like to age gracefully. You know, I can't take off my glasses, can't see just like everybody, all the other old people. You know, I don't know if you have reader, you got glasses, but I don't know if you have to do the readers change. The, you know. Oh, for sure. hundred percent. It's the worst. <laughs> I went to the eye doctor and they told me I needed bifocals and I said, no, no, yes, no, I do not. <laughs> I'm like, I draw the line there for a little yeah. while. Yeah, right. Daniel has released two books recently with 53rd State Press. The first is Love Like Light, a collection of his plays and performance texts from the last 25 years. And the second is titled Particle and Wave, a conversation with leading black feminist scholar Alexis Pauline Gums. Go find these books wherever books are sold, and if your local indie bookseller doesn't carry it, they'd very likely be happy to order it for you. Also be sure to visit Daniel's interactive website, www.aten.life. Thank you to PR rep April Thibault for setting up this conversation. I very much appreciate it. The music from this episode is from Krakatoa. The theme song for the subtext is High by International Pen Pal. Have any of you ever actually checked out their album? It's really good. You should check it out. It's on iTunes. Thank you to Rob Weiner-Kent at American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. This episode was produced by me and edited by the excellent K.J. Jarbo. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is The Helpers by Maggie Lou Rader. I heard of this play when it won the 2021 Patty Abramson Jewish Play Prize, but it took a nudge from one of my students who was humble bragging about being related to Maggie, and I thought... That was awesome. I gave that student a thousand bonus points and then went and grabbed a copy of this play to read. You should do the same. Well, I mean, read the play. <laughs>